0: Hello, welcome along to the show. Do you think it's getting a bit too hot down here? Might be time to explore what else is around the universe. Let's get cracking. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Hello, thanks for being there. My name's Dan. This is the show where we explore everything that's happening around through our solar system. And even beyond that, we search out some of those science secrets lurking. Hopefully a lot that you've never even heard before. This week, we'll learn all about an
1: incredible summer of science that's on the way for you. So the Summer Science Exhibition is happening between Tuesday the 4th of July and Sunday the 9th of July. And it's a unique event because we have a series of exhibits covering all sorts of uh, different types of science. Science is the basis of the way we live. So everything you look around you, you pick up your mobile phone, you blow into your computer, you eat some food, you whatever you do, there's science behind it.
0: Also, you can hear about storms, Rays And even actual wind up in space Okay, today we're
2: going to check out some different types of space weather Let's remind ourselves about where a lot of
0: it comes from Buckle up and sunglasses on Ah! And I've got your questions to answer as always This week it's on what salt is doing inside your body And why your eyes are the colour that they are Mine are a brilliant blue What's yours? We'll find out. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. This is amazing. It turns out that spots help monarch butterflies migrate. Now, we've spoken about the monarch butterfly before on the show. Beautiful creatures, they're found all over the world. And lots of them travel from Canada to Mexico, flying over the USA every year. Monarchs that make it, it turns out, have more white spots on their wings than the ones that don't. Scientists have been actually studying this, and the spots help. They don't know why. They think it might be something to do with the way air moves around their wings, and perhaps these spots help carry them to safety. And I love this because it shows so much about science that for some reason scientists have been looking up what's happening with the colour of monarch butterflies and they figured out that actually it really helps them and it shows that there's so much that we don't know about the world around us. Also, an app designed to improve the care of elephants has been used in a zoo keepers at noah's ark zoo farm in somerset here in the uk are using the app to see changes in elephants behavior it gives them prompts and tips over how the elephants might be feeling and what can be done to help this is brilliant we hear so much and we're worried so much about the future of uh, artificial intelligence but uh, having something really easily accessible for zookeepers to use that perhaps uses ai to think about how they can better take care of their creatures i think is a brilliant plan. And not so good news to finish. Our world is getting too hot and it's likely to break a key temperature warning over the next few years. Researchers say there's a 66% chance that we will pass the 1.5 degree global warming threshold by 2027 in just four years time. The temperature limit means that the whole world is warmed up by 1.5 degrees and we were aiming to keep it much less than that. So the fact that it's likely to get hotter means we're failing on global warming and our climate change goals. And remember, we are focused so much on what uh, governments and big companies can do to help out because there is a lot of power. But it's also really important for the little things that you can maybe do around your house just to help cool things down. And we do think so much about that on this podcast. All right, then for the last time, it's time to spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering. I hope you've really enjoyed the last few weeks or months or so going through every letter of the alphabet from a all the way to z learning about the world of engineering uh, how things are made what they are used for who designed them we've been exploring acoustics right the way through to zoos heading off to engineer academy with our good friend engers he is an engineering expert and for the last time it's time to spin the wheel to find out what letter we're exploring this week
3: Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel.
4: It's V and V is for ventilation.
3: Thanks Engers. Ventilation isn't something you probably think about much. But without good ventilation, our homes, schools, shops, and businesses would be more uncomfortable and could even be dangerous. But what do we mean by ventilation? Well, it's all to do with air. More specifically, clean air. We all need clean air to live healthily, but sometimes buildings don't have enough. Just think of a busy restaurant kitchen with lots of smoky grills or a factory making things which generate a lot of dust. (coughs) The lack of clean air in old buildings can cause other pollutants, like damp, which can make conditions like asthma worse. So what's the answer? Ventilation. To tell us more, it's over to Engers.
4: Ventilation is the process of getting rid of moisture, smoke dust, odours and other indoor pollutants from all sorts of buildings. At the heart of ventilation is something called airflow, which is pretty much what it sounds like, a flow of clean air coming in and taking pollutants out. It's good to have an airflow that's uninterrupted, as anything blocking the airflow can lead to indoor pollutants building up, which can damage both buildings and your health. So how can we keep air flowing in these spaces? First up there's mechanical ventilation. Mechanical ventilation is where fans create an airflow. Fans will help push air into a building and exhaust fans draw the air out. Sometimes these systems are combined with heat settings to warm up or cool the air. An alternative is natural ventilation, which is, well, at its most basic, what you do when you open a window. Although it does depend on the weather. After all, if there's no wind, there's no ventilation. Engineers can plan specific openings in buildings, such as louvre doors and windows, which naturally increase airflow, but they also need to consider if the environment outside contains pollutants. Say if a building was next to a busy motorway, natural ventilation might bring in more pollution than it removes. Natural ventilation doesn't require mechanical systems to move air around. It relies on the air pressure and wind itself to create a flow of air. Mechanics, though, can be used to control the openings, especially to regulate heat, opening them automatically when it's warm and closing them when the temperature is just right or falling. As well as airflow, filters are used to sieve out pollutants. Engineers use a variety of different filters for different things, whether smoke, dust or fibers. As you can imagine, engineering is key to a building having an effective ventilation system, whether that's the extractor fan over an oven at home or keeping a large factory cool. Let's take a look at some of the jobs ventilation engineers do. Some will be involved in designing the ventilation systems and will need to take into account a number of factors. Firstly. What is the building going to be used for? A factory with lots of machinery might need more cooling mechanisms than a shop on the high street. A smoky kitchen in a restaurant will need a system that can quickly move odors and smoke away from people working or eating. They also need to consider the age of the building, which might prevent certain works from taking place. There are strict planning rules, especially with plumbing and electrical systems, and engineers will need to make sure the ventilation system works seamlessly and safely with these systems. It's also important to design systems that are energy efficient to reduce emissions. Once the designs have been approved, the ventilation equipment and pipework can be installed. This might involve ductwork specialists. Ducts are large tubes in big buildings, like offices, hospitals and airports, which carry air around. Once installed, commissioning engineers will test the systems thoroughly to make sure they are working correctly. And then, once up and running, service engineers will carry out regular maintenance and repairs. Well done, team.
3: Thanks, Engers. Increasingly, ventilation engineers are working more with renewable energy heating systems like air source and ground source heat pumps. As their name suggests, air source pumps extract heat from the air to heat buildings and hot water, whilst ground source pumps take heat from deep underground, up to 200 meters down. And that's our look at the letter V. It's been Visionary. If you would like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out validation, value or vibration engineering?
0: Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkislive.com/engineer. Thank you so much to Engers, what a genius our engineering expert. I can't wait to check in uh, back to the Engineer Academy, uh, hopefully in a year or so's time. Next week, we'll have a brand new series for you. We're speaking to our gadget guru. Technomum is back. And don't go anywhere. We're going to another type of academy, a school. We're headed to Deep Space High a little later on in the show. Uh, right now, let me teach you. It's time to answer your questions. If you've got anything science that you want answered on this show something that you've heard that you wonder can that possibly be true let me know the best way to do it is by leaving a voice note on the free fun kids app or at funkidslive.com that way i know who you are what you sound like and you can star in the podcast just like this
4: hey hi Dan. this is a question for the fun Kids science weekly my name is casper and i'm six years old why did the salt make you thirsty thanks
0: what a brilliant question casper i think we take it Just normal, right? We take it for granted that, well, we've had a lot of salt, so we need more water. It makes us thirsty. But why does that happen? It's because your brain is always keeping track of what's happening in your body. When you have salt, when you eat it, it moves through your stomach into your blood and you have a very fine balance of salt in your body. It needs salt to keep healthy and to keep the chemicals in your body working well. But too much salt can be unhealthy for you. And your brain is constantly trying to pay attention to this. When it senses there's too much salt in your body, it needs water to dilute it. A good way to think of this is, you know when you have uh, like orange squash in a cup or something and you have the cordial on its own? And it tastes quite strong. Have you ever done that? But when you put water in it, it makes it taste weaker, doesn't it? It's diluting the strength of what is in there. It's the same thing with the amount of salt in your body with water. You need that water to uh, make the amount of salt in your body weaker. And it really helps you pee it out too, which helps some of the salt move outside your body. It helps you get rid of it so you can keep That delicate balance of salt, which is healthy and sometimes not healthy for you, in check. So that's why salt makes you thirsty. Let's get one on from Dylan in Miami now, who left this as a review over on Apple Podcasts. Dylan! Thank you so much for listening to the show over there. You wanted a shout out. There you go. Dylan wants to know, why does he have blue eyes, but other people have different coloured eyes? Well, Dylan, you're a lot like me. My eyes are very bright blue, and my mum and dad's eyes are very bright blue. That gives you a clue as to what's happening. Right now, what makes your eyes have color is the amount of melanin in them. We've spoken about melanin on the show before. It's what gives uh, your hair its color. It's what makes you have freckles as well. It's what gives your eye color. It's a pigment. It's a pigment. It's a chemical. The amount of melanin that you have decides how dark or light your eyes and your hair can be. And it's passed down through your family. So if your parents have an eye colour, it's likely that you'll have the same colour too. Because something in your DNA, which is all the information about who you are that you get when you're born, you share it with your parents, it's normally passed down through generations. In that DNA, it will be something that says... This person, Dylan in Miami, is meant to have this much melanin, just like your mum and dad, and that will control your eye colour. And that's why you have blue eyes, Dylan. Thank you so much for the question. If you have something you want to answer next week on the show, make sure you send it over as a voice note to me. That way you can star in the thing. You can do that on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, this week we're chatting about the Royal Society, a fantastically hands-on smart place in London. Loads of geniuses are involved, and they are putting on their summer science exhibition this week with loads that you can get involved with. Professor Carlos Frank is part of the Society and is here to tell us more. Carlos, thank you for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, I love the Royal Society, and I love that they are so engaging in wanting to get everyone interested in science... Uh, just tell us what's happening with this summer science exhibition week for you. What are the big headlines?
1: Well, so first let me just say why in the Royal Society we are so keen in uh, making science accessible to everyone, and that is because uh, part of it is self-interest because science is the base, the basis of the way we live. So everything you look around you, you pick up your mobile phone, you glow into your computer. Uh, you eat some food. You, whatever you do, there's science behind it. So that's why we are so keen. It's a kind of selfish, self-interested. <laughs> but it's also because uh, science, certainly in my mind, is just absolutely wonderful. Trying to understand the world in which we live is just uh, one of the most fascinating things that humans can do. So the Summer Science Exhibition is happening between Tuesday the 4th of July and Sunday the 9th of July. it's a unique event because we have a series of exhibits covering all sorts of uh, different types of science from uh, astronomy all the way to molecules and genes. uh, The whole spectrum of science, uh, biology, chemistry, uh, archaeology, dinosaurs, uh, it's all in there. And what's so exciting is that, as you say, some of these exhibits, all of them, are interactive so people can come. Uh, and just do experiments, not, not complicated experiments, but uh, there's all sorts of interesting equipment. For example, there's some robots that uh, are able to, it's amazing, right? they're used by doctors to, to do um, surgery on very very fine scales, and uh, you can manipulate one of these robots if you wish. Uh, but uh, that's fun. But in my mind, the most fun part of it is that the researchers who are doing the research are there. And they're there to talk to you. They're there to interact with you, to answer your questions. And most importantly, they're there to show you that scientists are not these magical people wearing lab uh, coats. No, scientists are just like you. Uh, They're humans. They're totally normal. They wear jeans. They wear T-shirts. They were one like I was, kids. And we are just ordinary people, uh, just lucky that we can spend our life trying to find out what the universe has done for us.
0: You said all about accessibility, making it engaging for everyone. Now, the Royal Society of Science, it sounds quite grand, doesn't it? Quite grand and fancy. Uh, what do you do to make it really open for everyone, even if they don't really know much about science?
1: Well, that's a very good question. So when you come into the building, and I should say, uh, the, you're very welcome to come into the building, and I hope as many of the listeners will come. Uh, and for example, at the week, on the weekend of the uh, 8th and 9th, we have a particularly family-oriented uh, sessions. But if you are uh, unable to come, you can always uh, uh, look at the exhibition on the Royal Society website. At any rate, if you come into the building, the first thing you see are these old portraits of these old 17th, 16th, 18th century men oh, invariably with long hair and looking you know, Newton-like And now don't be put off by that so the Royal Society is a very old uh, institution and in fact it's the oldest academy of science in the world it's about 350 years old however, we live in the 21st century and in spite of our grandiose surroundings <laughs> our wonderful collection of pictures we are accessible, we understand that science is done by everyone. Uh, We understand, I particularly, am very keen on uh, getting children interested in science because I I think children are naturally curious and uh, we are aware of that. And so we welcome everybody with open arms. Uh, It's no good saying, oh, I'm not um, cut out to do this and uh, I don't understand mathematics and this way above my head. No. Science is actually simple if somebody explains it to you the way it should be explained. So uh, it's all uh, welcoming. It, uh, you'll find uh, uh, people are really excited to be able to talk to, to, to children uh, because children are just curious. And when I'm there, which I will be on Tuesday, for example, I really welcome the questions that children ask me because they're usually the best questions, the basic and Challenging to answer because they're normally profound, but don't be—you know—you should not be intimidated. Science is for everyone, and, uh, uh, and and as I was saying earlier, scientists are just normal people, and we're particularly uh, keen to, to 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 talk to to young people because um, because they're the future.
0: When I do this show, Carlos, I hear from loads of listeners and like young people who are worried about the future and worried about c- climate change and the climate crisis and what we can do. Uh, how much of the exhibition looks at that and ways to save the planet going forward?
1: Well, there will be some part of the exhibition uh, dedicated to, to these sort of uh, uh, what we call existential problems, you know, problems that threaten humanity. And I should say these are very complex problems. The climate change, for example, um, and there will be many um, uh, sectors that will have to intervene and in order if we are to save the planet. But at the core of everything is science, of course. It is the science that has uh, showed that the crisis exists and is a science that will show us the way forward. So that there, there are exhibits about that, but there are others that are just fun. For example, uh, there is one called Drumming for Health. So how <laughs> you can use drumming, you know, the drums. Uh, My son is a a drummer. uh, And uh, how you can actually use drums to improve your health. It might seem slightly odd, but uh, there will be an experiment there where you can watch your heart rate and your oxygen levels respond to how you're drumming. So uh, that is more fun. It's not uh, a serious and threatening activity like climate change. But there is serious, more serious stuff to do with climate change, there's another one, for example. Again, nothing to do with climate change, uh, about volcanoes. You you have the robotic tools in this exhibit that can make you smell and feel the um, earth moving as it would during a volcano. So that's another that uh, I think is another highlight, uh, and so on. There are all sorts of really pretty interesting. Uh, and uh, fun science that doesn't all have to be with the existential threats that we face. But of course, uh, an exhibition like this has to have some connection with these crises that we have. Climate change is one, it's not the only one. Uh, we also know uh, what, what we call the, the loss of biodiversity. Sounds like fancy words. All it means is that uh, uh, lots of species of animals from insects, of course, to big animals that we're familiar with, from David Attenborough, many of them are at risk of becoming extinct because of changes, not just climate, uh, human-induced changes in their habitats. So there will be uh, also an opportunity to learn about that. Uh, uh, There's also, you can see fossils that uh, recently in the uh, cave excavations in in the UK, there uh, were some um, fossils of woolly rhinos, Uh, reindeer, you'll be able to see those. So they're also extremely kind of fun things to do. Some of them are fun and also touch upon these big problems. So for example, I don't know how many of your listeners heard about the pangolin. It's a very strange animal who's on the brink of extinction. There's an exhibition on that as well. Uh, So there's something for everyone and there's something for every age. So if children come with their parents, their parents will not be bored. (laughs) (laughs) The Chief only won't be.
0: Now, Carlos, I, I know that you as a scientist, and you've mentioned this earlier, that you're interested in answering the most important questions about the universe. Now, I, I would say the most important one is probably why we're here. Where did it start? What was around before the Big Bang? Right. Let's take that. What do you think is the second most important question about our universe right now?
1: The second one, not, not the first one. but the
0: not, the, not the first one. Yeah, that, we, we kind of figured out what the most important question is. We're trying to answer it. What do you think is the second most important question uh, about our universe?
1: Yes. So I was just uh, giving a professional seminar to physicists. We talked about something similar to this. So let me tell you what my answer to that is. And that is this. We have discovered over the last 30 years or so that most of the matter of the material, the mass of the universe, doesn't shine. It's completely dark. Something that we call dark matter. It's matter, it produces the gravitational force that we feel when uh, we fall down the stairs or when we throw a ball on the ground. So the gravity uh, of uh, the universe as a whole is produced by this uh, dark substance that doesn't shine. It's most of the mass in the universe it's called dark matter, and um, it's responsible for galaxies existing, it's responsible for stars, uh, ultimately for responsible for planets and people. And we don't know what it is. We know it's there because we can feel its gravitational effect. We just don't know what it is. So to me, this is one of the big, big, big uh, open questions in, in the science of the universe, and it's one that I've dedicated uh, much of my life trying to answer. And I must confess, I haven't found the answer yet.
0: (laughs) Do you think we can pick up dark matter? Like matter implies that it exists. It is a thing. It just doesn't shine, so we can't see it. But if we found some dark matter, could you pick it up?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Maybe not pick it up with your hands, because the chances are that this dark matter is made of tiny little particles. Uh, But you may not be able to hold it in your hand, or you might if it gets into small lumps. But uh, the way it will be detected, if it ever is, is by having detectors that are so sensitive that when one of these particles coming from the outer space hits the detector, it leaves a signal. And interestingly, these detectors have to be placed in strange, inhospitable places like at the end, in deep mines, for instance, to shield them from all the uh, radiation that falls on Earth routinely. The Earth is being bombarded by particles that we call cosmic rays. They would interfere with the experiment. So these experiments take place at the bottom of mines. I, I've been down a mine in Yorkshire called the Balby Mine, which is one of the most fascinating environments ever. And down deep in this mine is a soft mine. Uh, one and a half kilometers uh, on the ground, there is this wonderful physics experiment. It's a detector that is looking out to register when a particle of dark matter from outer space produces a um, it set and produces a small signal. So, you know, the technology behind it is astonishing. But the idea as well that uh, yeah, the earth is full of these uh, dark matter particles, and uh, but they're very difficult to detect. That's why we don't know what it is. And we've been looking for these for years, for decades, and they're still to be discovered. So that's one of the problems. It's the second most important problem in my mind, in my subject.
0: Wow. Well, I'm so excited for one day, maybe we find out what's going on. Well, you you can get the answers for loads more different questions at the Royal Society's Summer Science Exhibition. Find out more, uh, get to royalsociety.org. Professor Carlos Frank, thank you for joining us.
1: It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: It's time for this week's Dangerous Stan, where we take a sneak peek at some of the strangest, weirdest, and sometimes meanest creatures in the world. This week, we're looking at one of the weirdest worms on the planet. They're called onycorphorans, but it's easier to call them velvet worms. That's what they go by. They are worms, but they've got small legs, so it makes them look a bit like caterpillars, but they've got antennae that look a bit like pincers on their head. And the way that they look and work is so useful to them, they've not changed in 500 million years. They get to about 10 centimetres long, you find them over South America and into Australia. And here is the good stuff about the velvet worm. They have a deadly slime. When it sees some prey and it's hungry, it stays quiet. It sneaks up very stealthily and shoots out a double stream of sticky slime. It glues its food to the floor. Then it pierces them, uh, pushing its deadly stomach juices into its prey, and then it sucks out the gooey insect's insides. How amazing is it that this creature, Velvet Worm, something so small, 10 centimetres long, it's adapted and evolved for its place in the world over the last 500 million years because it's learned... How to shoot out deadly sticky slime. And because how cunning and smart that is, nature is, it means the velvet worm goes straight onto our danger stand list. Let's head up to Deep Space High right now, the smartest school in the solar system. Every week we get a listen with Professor Pulsar, uh, with Sam, with Stats, with Quark, who all go to the school just like us. And we're finding out all about space weather in this series, from magnetic storms to cosmic rays, solar wind. There's so much going on up there. Let's take a listen.
3: Deep Space High, Intergalactic Weather Watch
2: to deep space high. The school is space. But hurry because lessons are about to begin. Whoa, All right, settle down. Hey, where's Quark?
4: Must have missed the space bus.
2: Not again. Okay, today we're going to check out some different types of space weather. Let's remind ourselves about where a lot of it comes from. Buckle up and sunglasses on. This is the Earth's sun. It's constantly sending waves of energy to the planets in its solar system. And a good thing it does, life on Earth would be impossible without the light, heat and energy it provides. In fact, this energy is so strong that if it wasn't for the magnetic field around Earth, it would be harmful. So
4: does the magnetic field act like a shield? Man, that's bright.
2: Pretty much. All this movement of energy is called a solar wind. Now, if I just tweak these filters, there you can see it for yourself. Normally, solar winds are invisible, although there's one way you can see them. Near the Earth's poles, the energetic particles react with oxygen in the atmosphere and create things called aurora, beautiful, rippling coloured waves in the sky.
4: That's so pretty!
2: Solar winds travel at different speeds, depending on where they originated on the sun. Winds from the top and bottom travel much faster than those from the middle. The really, really fast winds are known as high-speed solar wind streams. Luckily, they usually blast up or down, and not towards planet Earth.
4: Which is probably a good thing, because that's one kind of wind you wouldn't want to get caught in.
2: (laughs) OK, settle down. Now, as we've seen, the sun is a big, bubbling, moving mass of gases and plasma. And every now and then, there's a solar flare. And if I'm right, three, two, one. Hold on tight. A solar flare is an outburst of radiation and energetic gases. They are pretty common, almost daily occurrences, and don't have much impact on life on Earth. Sometimes these flares can affect things like satellite navigation systems, but generally their impact is small. However, sometimes things get a little more dramatic. Yeah, you're going to need to tighten those seatbelts. That's a coronal Mass Ejection. It's a high-speed burst of denser material that's ejected when the magnetic fields in the sun's atmosphere become unstable. This makes the solar wind turbocharged as it races through the solar system. <laughs> coronal mass ejections are so strong that they can break through the Earth's magnetosphere, creating magnetic storms, and that's when the Earth's magnetic field is disrupted. And as a result, electric currents become intensified, and anything that relies on electricity or magnets can all be disrupted. These magnetic storms also heat the upper atmosphere, which can affect radio transmissions. And that means wireless technologies such as satellite navigation, wireless internet and mobile telephones.
4: Oh no! How will we cope without mobile phone and Wi-Fi?
2: OK, most coronal mass ejections don't affect things too badly. But a really large one can. The largest ever recorded space weather event was in September 1859. It's known as the Carrington event, after a British astronomer who observed the solar flare it caused auroras to be seen over the caribbean whoa
4: that must have looked amazing although you shouldn't look at the sun directly
2: that's right stats you can damage your eyes and blind yourself ah uh, ah uh, uh, sorry i'm late where have you been i missed the bus and then there was a supernova so we had to wait for ages to take a detour via the large Magellanic cloud (laughs) Typical Well, supernovas have something to do with space weather too Some solar winds which reach Earth don't come from the sun Check out these galactic cosmic rays supernovae are large explosions which occur when stars collapse they send electrically charged particles far into space again interfering with electrical equipment they come across I'll kick the filters on and you can see for yourself we'll be back in Earth's orbit in no time thanks to this solar wind luckily really big events are rare and next lesson we'll look at how scientists predict space weather and I predict that it's the
0: end of the lesson
2: Class dismissed.
0: Deep Space High, Intergalactic Weather Watch. With support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Find out more at fungislife.com slash space. More with Professor Pulsar and the rest of the Deep Space High gang learning all about uh, intergalactic weather at the same time next week. Remember, if you've got a question that you want answered on this show, the best thing to do is to leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Say your name, let me know where you are, and ask that question. That way you can star on the show. You can hear loads more brilliant episodes and series. You've heard some today. We've got tons for you on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows as well. They're on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com and Fun Kids are our children's radio station from the UK Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.